If you're a Christian, then today's episode is very important for you. I wonder if you've ever shared your faith. Maybe you've wanted to, but you've been nervous about it, or maybe you don't know exactly what to say. Maybe you even know the Bible passages you'd like to go through, but you don't know how to explain them. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through passages of Scripture on how to lead someone to Christ, and at the end of it, you'll have a very clear idea of how to lead someone to Jesus. So let's talk about it. Welcome to Faith in Real Life, where we talk about truths of the Bible that are relevant to your life and faith. My name is Obi. I'm a pastor to men and single adults at First Baptist O'Fallon. And today we're talking about how to share the gospel. Now, maybe this is something that you've wanted to do because you're a Christian, uh, but maybe you just haven't felt adequately trained. Or maybe you've shared your faith before, but you just like a, maybe a clear strategy. Or maybe there's been times that you've gone through passages and some questions come up and you're not exactly sure how to explain it. Um, today we're going to go through four verses, and you may know these. They're the Roman road, and I think a lot of Christians are familiar with them, but maybe they haven't ever had them explained to them in clear detail so that they know as we go through these verses, what am I supposed to say? What can I say to help a person understand how to be saved? Well, when I lead someone to Christ, one of the first things I do is I kind of narrow the field, meaning I tell them I'm going to go through four verses that tell you how to be saved. Now, some people use more than four, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I say I'm going to go through these four verses. That's it, four. And they're going to tell you how you can be saved. And I do that at the outset because I want them to start to be comfortable. I want them to not think we're just going to go on an endless biblical journey that I'll just never be able to wrap my mind around this. This is a very finite way to lead someone to Christ, and it's a finite way to, um, to see these verses and to explore with them how to be saved through God's Word. So they may be intimidated by the Bible. This is, you know, it's a, it's a big book. There's a lot to this Word of God. And so that's a way by saying just four verses at the outset, it's a way of kind of calming, calming any nerves, apprehension, especially with someone who is unfamiliar with the Bible. So I'm going to say these verses. I'm just going to tell you the, the passages. Don't worry if you don't get them written down, um, and especially if you, you don't know them, haven't heard of them. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to them. We're going to talk through each one of these, but it's Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10.9. And I do it in that very specific order, and uh, you'll see why as we go through it. So let's just jump right into it. Romans 3.23 is the first one. If you know anything about the book of Romans, um, it, it's kind of an argument. In fact, every time I teach it, I call it the Roman argument. And so what you have in this book is Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 really point to the guilt of people. So chapter 1 points to the guilt of Gentiles before God. And Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish, right? So you, odds are, if you're watching, you're not Jewish. You may be, but you're a Gentile like me, most likely. Um, but then Romans 2 says a message to the Jewish people because they may say, oh, in Romans 1, yeah, the Gentiles are sinners before God. Well, then you get to Romans chapter 2 and it, it's pointing the light at the Jews. Well, the Jewish people are sinners as well. So then you get to Romans chapter 3 and the message there is that everyone is a sinner. So Romans 1, the G Gentile is. Romans 2, the Jew is. Romans 3, 
we're all sinners. The whole world is sinners, but but Jesus, right? So that that's the gospel. That's the good news. We're all sinners separated from a holy God, but Jesus. Now, you don't need to explain that all to a person. I'm telling you that for context, so you can kind of understand this Roman argument. So then we start in Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. So it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, right, this is that argument that I was talking about. Everyone has sinned. So that's the first thing I kind of get the person to acknowledge is I say, are you a sinner? Do you agree with that? This says everyone has sinned. I've never had anyone say that they haven't sinned. Most people are pretty aware of their sin, especially if they're to the point of having this conversation. And then it says all fall short of the glory of God. See, the reason that being a sinner is such a big deal is it's because we have a holy God. We talk a lot, a lot about God being a God of love, and he absolutely is. But he's also a holy God. And in fact, verses, or chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, the whole point is to say you stand guilty before a holy God. A few verses earlier, Romans 3 even says that we stand before him and the law was put in there so that every mouth may be shut. And it gives us this picture of standing before a judge and trying to plead our case and there's no response because we're clearly guilty. We have nothing more to say because we're clearly guilty. So that's the picture of Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned, we agree with that, and fall short of the glory of God, His standard, His perfection, His glory. So that's what I want people to understand first, is that we serve a perfect God, a sinless God, a holy God who is good and just and, yes, loving, but we fall short of His standard. So that's all I get them to understand with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. So then I go several chapters over, three chapters over, go to Romans 6, verse 23. So Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And I'll just pause there. So the first thing I get someone to understand is what the word wage means. Uh, it, it, we kind of understand that nowadays. We think of a wage. Um, but in the Bible, hearing a word like that, it might kind of throw them off. So I say, when you think of a wage, you think of your job. If you have a job, you earn a wage. A wage is something you earn. So looking again at this part of the verse, the wages of sin. Okay, so sin earns something. Just like my job earns a paycheck, sin earns something. This says... The wages of sin is death. So sin earns death. Now the next thing I get them to understand, since sin earns death, is what kind of death? The Bible makes it very clear there's two types of death. There's the death of the body and then the death of the spirit. And if you think of what death actually is, the physical death is the separation of um, body from soul. Okay, so when, when someone dies, their soul leaves that body. If you think of the second death, and Revelation talks about the second death, really it is our soul's separation from God for all eternity in a real place called hell. So when this says the wages of sin is death, it's talking about, yeah, your physical death. We all get that one. We know that uh, we're all mortal beings and we're going to die one day. But there's a second part to that, that the wages of sin is death. It's separation from that holy God that we talked about. It's separation from him for all eternity in a real place called hell. That's the reality. So I get them to understand that. When I'm talking to someone about how to be saved, and if someone is watching today and they're not saved, that is what I would have you understand. But I am talking to Christians today. I want you to understand the principles in these verses. 
that we need people to understand if they're going to come to Christ. So we've seen that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner short of God's standard. But then we go to Romans 6.23 and we see that the wages of that sin, the things that I do, I've earned death, both physical and spiritual in a real place called hell. But then it says the word but. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a gift. I've earned death. I've earned physical and spiritual death, but there's a gift from God, and that is eternal life. And how do I access that eternal life? It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, so then I turn to, I go back a chapter to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it says, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is a this is a message of love. The the whole the whole gospel is a message of love that yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yes, that sin earned something and that earning is death, but God showed his own love, proved his own love for us, and that while I was a sinner, while I'm a sinner, that falls short of the glory of God, that earns death, both physical and spiritual, Christ died for me. So Christ, the picture in Scripture, and what I would have someone understand next is the picture in Scripture is that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for my sins. And the reason he has to be a perfect sacrifice, if he wasn't perfect, if he was sinful too, well, then he could just pay for his own sins. But he is a perfect sacrifice who pays for my sins. And because he paid for my sins, then I can have this hope of eternal life, this gift of eternal life. Because what has been clear, what's clear in Romans 6.23, is that something has to die for sin, because sin earns death. And so that's what Jesus did. He died in my place. So you see what we want people to understand so far. We've gone through three of these verses. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. God has a standard. We're short of it because of our sin. And that sin earns death, both physical and but then also spiritual in a real place called hell where our soul is separated from God for all eternity. But God loves us so much that instead of just leaving us in our sinful state, Christ died for us. He died in our place. This is a gift he offers. So then the next question is, how do I receive this gift? So that's where we turn to the last verse. So I go to Romans 10, chapter 10, and verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I'll just pause there. So this says confessing with our mouth. Now this is a reason um, that I know I, I do it sometimes, but a lot of pastors have people recite a prayer or say a prayer. And there's no, there's no magic, for lack of a better word, in just saying the words, right? This is something that has to be a heart deal. It has to be, it has to be something that... Uh, we truly mean. If a person just recites a prayer, then there's no power behind that. But if it's a heart's confession, that's what this word is talking about. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If it's a heart confession, that's what we're talking about. So if someone's prayed what they call the sinner's prayer, then this is an instance of confession. Now, there's another thing that people could do to be this public profession, confession of faith, and that's baptism. Right? It is a biblical thing to be baptized. Once a person is saved, the very first act of obedience is baptism. Now, if you're someone who's put that off, and I talk to people about this, if, if you've put that off, 
then that doesn't mean you couldn't have been obedient in other areas, but there is at least one area where you're disobedient. The Bible calls us to be baptized. It calls us to um, partake in that picture of the death where we're buried with Christ in, in baptism and then raised again to walk in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism where you're dunked under the water like being buried and raised again in a new life. So there's another public profession. But this says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, I always pause here. So Romans 10, 9, that's where I'm at. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That word Lord, so many times people think that's part of Jesus' name, right? We, th we think uh, Jesus Christ Lord, those are all part of his name. Well, it's not. Jesus is his name. He would have been called Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Christ means Messiah. Lord means Master. So when we hear this phrase, Jesus is Lord, when you hear that, it's a declaration of something. It's saying that God is now my master. It's saying that I give my allegiance to him. So this is an important part to understand when I'm leading someone to Christ is I want them to understand that their, their allegiance is transferring. They're changing over to saying God is now my master. I no longer serve self, sinfulness, just this flesh, this earthliness. I'm giving my life to you, God. And then the question usually comes up, and this is why I'm talking to you about it today, because when you lead someone through this passage, and I hope you will, I hope you'll have the boldness to, to lead people to Christ, but when you get to that point about Jesus being Lord, Jesus being Master, it immediately pops up in people's mind, well, I'm not going to be perfect. I, I know I won't be a perfect servant. I know I won't be uh, fully dedicated to Him. I know I'm going to mess up. Of course we are right? Of, of course I'm going to mess up in life. Any Christian out there who's watching this knows that from the day you accepted Christ, you have not been perfect since then. But what this is talking about is a switch of allegiance. It's saying that I recognize now the authority of God in my life, and I am going to try to be a faithful servant. I'm no longer going to recognize that my life is just to be uh, fulfilling of the sinful desires, the flesh desires. And so I always equate it to something like this. I have three kids, and if I walk into a room and, and they're doing something bad, and they see me, then they may take off running or something, right? I had this one instance where uh, my youngest, Ezra, he had been quiet for quite some time. And, uh, and so me and my wife go upstairs, and he, I, I peek my head up my steps, and he sees me and he just goes, sorry, and he takes off running. Well, it turns out he had spread glue all over the, the carpet and games and walls and windowsill and all sorts of things. He had just taken a bottle of Elmer's glue and he would had a great time. So he wasn't a perfect kid in that instance, right? But the moment he saw me, he recognized my authority. He recognized that he was about to be in trouble. Well, we're not called to be scared children of God, but he does call us his children. When we accept Christ, he adopts us into his family, and it is a father-child relationship. And yeah, sometimes we're bad kids, but the point is we recognize his authority over us. That's what the Christian life is about is saying, yes, I know I mess up sometimes, God, but you are my authority. And so there may be areas of my life after this, there's going to be areas, not maybe. There are going to be areas of, of our life that God has to work out. That there's some things that um, I came to you, God, just how I am, and how I am is not perfect. And so there's some things about me that maybe he's going to spend the rest of his our life working on, but we need to continually be progressing. We're not going to be perfect, but we need to be progressing. 
And so this says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So that statement is saying, God, I now surrender to you. I give you my allegiance. I, I place you in, as authority over me. I recognize you as my Lord. And so there's a confession there. And that's part of the prayer that I have people pray is recognizing his lordship over their life, that he is their master. But then it says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I'm just going to pause there. So believe, that word belief, or you may see faith, it means to trust God. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what the word faith means. And so I, I want people, when I lead them to Christ, to understand this word faith. If they think of faith as, uh, I think of the passage that talks about we walk by faith, not by sight. And people hear that and they think, well, that means Christians are blind. That's a misconception of what biblical faith is about, what Christian faith is about. It's not just the belief that God exists. A lot of times people think, oh, well, you believe in God. And they don't mean you trust God. They, they just mean you believe he exists. Well, this concept of faith comes from Genesis when it talks about Abraham, where it says uh, God had given a promise to Abraham. And it talked about uh, he didn't have a child and he wanted an heir. And God says, look at the stars and see if you be able to count them. So shall be your heirs, so shall be your descendants. And it says in that moment, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? Did he believe that God existed? Well, of course he did. He was apparently conversing or seeing a vision or, or hearing God's voice. The existence of God wasn't in question. Of course he believed that. In fact, James 2.19 says, even the devil believes and trembles. Satan believes in God, right? Satan's not going to heaven. It's not the belief in the existence of God that gets someone to heaven. That's not it. It's trusting the promises. That's what Abraham did. When he says, look at the stars, see if you can count them, that's what your descendants will be like. It says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God's word. God gave him a very specific promise that he was going to have heirs, that he was going to have descendants. Abraham believed, and it was that belief, that trust, that faith in the promise of God that provided him righteousness. Now, you may say, well, how's that relevant today? Well, actually, in this exact same book, in Romans chapter 4, that's the argument that Paul makes for faith. He says that as, as Abraham, uh, like Abraham's faith was in a promise of God, we too trust in a promise of God. I wonder if you know what that promise is. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's believing that that is sufficient. In fact, look what this says. Look back at Romans 10. If you have your Bibles open or look it up after this, Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. Now, what does it say? Believe in your heart what? That God exists? No. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. We believe something very specific in Christianity, not just that there is an existence of a God out there, but that this eternal God loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place. But he didn't just leave him dead, he raised him again. And because he has power over death and he demonstrated that through Christ, I can have hope. And that's the promise we put our faith in. Do I have to believe God exists? Of course I have to believe. That's a, that's a given. But when it says we walk by faith, not by sight, it's not talking about his existence. It's talking about trust in a promise that I can't see yet. It's saying that, do you believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you? Not just that God exists. Of course you have to believe God exists. Romans 1.20, so staying in the same book, says that God is apparent in his creation. 
that he revealed himself to us through his creation. Right? So the existence of God is not what's under question. What's under question is, do I trust his promises? And his promise for the New Testament people, for, for modern believers, for believers alive today, is that Jesus Christ died in our place, paying the wages of our sins, paying the earnings of our sins, because I am a sinner and couldn't pay for it myself. He died in my place, paid for it, but then he rose again. And if I trust him, and if I put my faith, my trust, my hope in his sacrifice, look what the rest of the verse says. It says, God raised him from the dead. If you believe that, it says, you will be saved. This is what salvation is about. It's about these four verses. Now, there's other verses we could include in, but this is, this is probably as simple as I can make it. That Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That Romans 6.23, that the wages of those sin is death. But Romans 5.8, while I was a sinner, God proved his love and Christ died for me in my place. So that verse 9 of chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, saying, God, you're my authority and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God, you're my authority, and I believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I put my trust in him, I put my hope in him, my faith in him, my allegiance in him. If I do that, it says, you will be saved. Now, when I'm leading someone to Christ, I go through an explanation like this, and I say, have you ever had a time in your life where you did that? Where you understood this and said, God, I give you authority over my life, I make you Lord of my life, and I trust you to save me. I believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and I trust that to save me. Have you ever done something like that in your life? And if not, do you want to today? That's what I ask people. And I hope anyone watching or listening will think through that. If, have they done that? If they have, then this message is just to teach you how to, how to share it to someone else. But if someone's watching or listening today, then this message is for you. To say, have you ever done that? If you've never done that, then I want you to just think through these verses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the template for a prayer that you could pray. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. So God, I admit that I am a sinner. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. God, because I admit that I'm a sinner, I believe that I have earned death, both physical and spiritual. So then Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his love for me in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. So God, I believe that Jesus died in my place, that he's this perfect sacrifice, and he died in my place. And then Romans 10, 9 says that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, God, I make you Lord of my life, and I believe in my heart that God raised from the dead. God, I believe that Jesus died in my place and rose again. I ask you to save me. The teaching of Scripture is that he will. The teaching of Scripture is that he will. And then I do something more because I, I don't like, sometimes, sometimes in churches we almost try to talk people out of salvation and we get it to the point where we try to believe in our ability to believe. I don't like that. Our faith is in Jesus, not in my ability to believe. 1 John 5.12, I know I said four verses, but I'm just going to tell you about this one. 1 John 5.12 says, the one that has the Son has life. The one that has not the Son has not life. Salvation is about Jesus. Jesus alone. Trusting Him. So there are going to be times where you doubt. There's going to be times where you have difficulties and think, Am I really saved? Well, 1 John 5.12, The one that has the Son has life. The one that has not the Son has not life. And I use this example. I had 
this uh, youth member when I was a student pastor, and uh, I talked to them after youth one night. They wanted to be saved, and they were crying and so emotional, and and we I led them through this, and they got saved. Then we went to some event, and this pastor, um, he, he laid it on hard, and uh, he had a diff, uh, uh, convicting message, and honestly, made them doubt their salvation a little bit, just being honest. He made them doubt their salvation. I'm sure you've sat through a church service like that where maybe you've given your life to Christ, but then afterward you're like, but did I really? And maybe I'll mean it more this time. Well, this girl, she goes forward and, and she, uh, she's crying and has all the same emotional reactions she did just a few months earlier when she had talked to me. And so afterward I talked to her and I just said, hey, so what's going on? Uh, and she's like, well, I just don't know if I mean it. I, I don't know if I meant it. She had all the sincerity in the world. And she may have gone through in three months. Maybe there's a revival and she and she does it again. And then six months later, a year later, is she going to have to do this for the rest of her life? That's not the picture of Scripture. In fact, First John chapter 4 says that perfect love casts out fear. I'm not supposed to be afraid. When Romans 8.15 says that we are adopted by God, it says... That, um, that we don't have any, he didn't give us a spirit of bondage unto fear, right? But a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We're not supposed to be in, in fear our whole life because our salvation is not about us. It's about trusting him. So even when I feel worthless, I remember that I entered into this salvation covenant by admitting that I'm a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. If you accept Jesus Christ and you sin, Realize that he already knows you're a sinner. That's how you accepted Christ. And so after that, it's about trusting Jesus, that Jesus died for my sins, past, present, and future. So there's times where I need to restore that fellowship with him, that I need to become uh, more faithful to him, that I need to walk in him. I need to say, hey, God, I'm sorry I did this. Get it out of my life so I can live for you better. But that relationship hasn't changed. So when my youngest son squirts glue all over my carpet and on my windows and walls, he doesn't stop being my son. He's still my child. That's the picture of scripture, is that once Christ adopts you into the kingdom of God, the family of God, you are his family. So that's what I want you to hear. Once and for all, trust Jesus as your Savior. And once you have Jesus in your life, once you've given your life to him that says, God, I give you authority, doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but I am going to recognize your authority. And when there's areas that I mess up, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to repent. I'm going to say, God, help me out with this. But once I've given my life to Jesus, it's saying I trust him, not my ability to believe, not my ability to be good. I trust his sacrifice. That's what is counted to me as righteousness, that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And the Bible says that that is sufficient for me to be saved. And that's what I trust. And because I have the Son, 1 John 5, 12 says, I have life. Man, I hope that gives you hope today. If you're listening, watching, I hope that that gospel message, those gospel truths give you hope that they allow you to walk the Christian walk without fear. Fear of saying, yeah, but you don't understand my past. That's true, I don't. But God does, and that's what he died for. Yeah, but you don't understand. Sometimes I struggle with this. That's true, I don't. But God does. There is no sin so egregious that he can't cover it. He knows what's going to happen in your future. And if you've trusted him, he's already covered it. He's already paid for it. 
while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. This doesn't say if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you'll be saved until you sin again. That's not what it says. It says you're saved. That you are saved. That you were once lost, now you're found. That you were once drowning, now you're rescued. That's the picture of Scripture. So I hope it provides you hope today. And for Christians out there, walk without fear. Walk in faith, trusting him that his grace is sufficient for you. But then also I challenge you, walk in boldness. Play this podcast, this video cast again and again. Remember these four verses, Romans 3.23, 9. Get those in your mind. Every Christian needs to know those. You need to know how to explain the, the simple gospel to people. Listen to this podcast again and again. Hear the explanation of those four verses. Get it in your mind. Write it on your heart so that when the opportunity comes, you have no reason, no excuse not to share the gospel message with someone who needs to hear it. That's my hope for you. Well, thanks for watching and listening today. We'll be back next week with a new topic. And if you are in the O'Fallon, Illinois area, we'd love for you to stop by our church. We have two awesome services each week. We have all sorts of small groups uh, for all ages. Uh, we have ministries for every walk of life. Um, for instance, I'm the pastor to single young adults, single adults and men. And for our young adults, uh, if you're dating, single, or even engaged, we have every Thursday night we have a, a thing we call SYA night. And it's basically a weekly event, but we have worship, Bible study, supper, we have games. It's just an awesome time for anyone 18 to lower 30. So that's one of the ministries that our church offers. And there's a whole lot more for all walks of life. So you can find out details about all the things happening at our church uh, through social media or through fbcofallon.org. That's fbcofallon.org. And we'll see you next time.